Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. friends, Elisa Childers here. Did you know that the New Testament Gospels weren't the only Gospels that were written about Jesus' life? How do we know that the Gospels that are in our Bibles tell the truth about His life and teachings? Is there anything we can learn from these extra-biblical or non-canonical Gospels? We're going to talk about it with a special guest on today's podcast. guest is a cold case homicide detective, popular national speaker, and best-selling author Jay Warner Wallace. He was a conscientious and vocal atheist until he was 35 when he investigated the claims of Christianity in very much the same way he investigated his cold cases. The conclusion he came to is that Christianity is actually true, and ever since, he has continued to take an evidential approach to the truth as he examines the Christian worldview. So he's done some great investigative work on the subject we're going to talk about today, which is what some people would call the lost gospels or the non-canonical gospels. So he's going to help us make some sense out of these writings, what they are, and how we as Christians can be knowledgeable and wise in the way that we interact with them. So Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. This is one of those topics that uh, hardly anybody, as a matter of fact, when I told Susie we were going to talk about the non-canonicals, she's like, really? <laughs> who, who in the world talks about those things? So, Well, it's true. It true, yeah, because right? yeah, some people yeah. may not be aware that the New Testament Gospels aren't the only ancient religious writings that talk about Jesus. And I, I wanted to talk about it with you today because as the world becomes kind of more consolidated, as more information gets gets sent out into the world via the internet and social media, and you, there's so much false information out there. I think people are becoming more and more aware of these non-canonical gospels. In fact, um, I read that when you were investigating Christianity as an atheist, you were actually kind of fascinated by these non-canonical stories and legends about Jesus. So uh, with, with all of these different writings, and we're going to get into the specifics of what some of those are in a minute, but with all these different writings, 
Is it even possible to separate legend from history? And how do scholars do that? How do they determine the historical reliability of an ancient document? And then there's a, there's a special kind of twist that you have on it as a detective as well, and how you did that as you were going through some of these writings. Yeah. That, uh, so so my own experience was that I didn't have any access. I mean, I was never raised in a Christian environment. So I, when I first started examining Christianity, I, I was just collecting data. And I wanted to know what is, I knew what there are four, forget about historians for a second, because mm-hmm. I'm sure they have their own process. That's great. Uh, in a sense, detectives are also historians of a sort. Mm. If the crime occurred three weeks ago, or if it was just reported yesterday, I'm not testing something I can repeat the test. I, I'm, I'm looking at something forensically that's happened in the past, if it's 24 hours ago, or if it, my case is sometimes are 30, 35 years ago, we're looking at something from history and trying to determine what is true. And I know one thing for sure, you cannot be considered a reliable eyewitness to anything unless you have four factors of witness reliability in place, and they're simple. One, were you there at all? Can you demonstrate that you were there? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're not there and you just came into the thing 10 years later and want to try to convince me that you were there and saw something, if I I can prove that you weren't even physically present, this whole thing's going to collapse. So were you actually physically present to see what you said you saw? Number two, can you be corroborated in some way? The more corroboration, the better, of course, but I would need some kind of corroboration or verification. Three, have you been changing your story or have you been honest and accurate in the past and you're honest and accurate with this? You haven't been changing your story over the last 20 years. And four, do you have a reason to lie? Are you motivated to lie to me because there's something you can gain from the lie? Mm-hmm. Do you, is there a bias that is driving you? So, so that's the, the four areas we look at, right? And, and so that's how I think we would atta- uh, test, rather. And I was somebody who didn't know what was what. I, I was uh, new to Christianity. I knew there, there were these Gospels. And one day I was in a bookstore back when there actually were bookstores, mm-hmm. and I was looking on the shelves in this Christian section just to see what I could find, you know, what's been written about Christianity, blah, blah, blah. And I see this book called The Lost Books of the Bible. Mm. And not knowing what was even out there yet, because I was brand new to all this, I thought, what? There are some books that were lost? And so I bought this book, and that started me into a, a, a search for about, you know, about a year or so, reading through all the non-canonicals, all the... And of course, this title for the book is the title you would want to give it if you wanted to sell books. But this is not really describing the lost books of the Bible. It is describing the very well-known books that were discarded by those who knew better books of the Bible. But but that's not a good title, right? So so they were called the lost books of the Bible. And what they're describing are, um, you know, uh, late, uh, false, uh, discarded legends of Christianity. People often say, well, if Jesus really lived... Do you mean to tell me that all that ends up showing up in historical records are the four Christian Gospels? No, actually, that's not true. There are tons of other documents that show up like a ripple effect from the point of impact of Jesus on planet Earth. But the problem is that every ripple that gets further away from the point of impact is less powerful in terms of its truth value. And and so by the time you get into the second century, whatever's being written about, you can trust there'll be some distortion. And then in the third century, even more. In the fourth century, even more. So what we're looking for are those documents that are early enough to have actually to, to pass the first requirement, to have really have been written 
by people who could have actually known Jesus and written early enough that even if they weren't somebody who knew Jesus, the people who knew Jesus were still alive and could vet them and say, this is a lie. Mm. So the, the first criteria I'm always looking for is, were you really there? And, and, and if that's all we did, is ask that single question, well, guess what you're going to limit yourself to? You're going to limit yourself to the four canonical Gospels because everything else is late in history. Mm -hmm. Now, some are later than others, um, but they're late. And as a matter of fact, and people don't even realize that there's a whole set. Uh, and I, I'm just now starting to repopulate um, the Cold Case Christianity website with some of these. Uh, I had a website for years when I was a youth pastor called Please Convince Me. It doesn't uh, contain all the articles it used to contain uh, because we shifted everything over to the Cold Case Christianity website. But I didn't take or didn't bring over all of the non-canonicals. I had a, an article written for every significant non-canonical that's out there. Mm -hmm. um, and I've only brought a few of those over. So as I was getting ready to talk to you about this, I realized I should probably republish all of the other articles and I will over the yeah, next several sure. months start to republish all those. But, you know, I've, I've, I've written on all of them because I was so fascinated by them. I'm thinking I probably have, let's see, just looking at this right now, uh, 37, 37 that I've written wow. something on. Cause you, you, um, even so though, you do have quite a bit of, uh, blog posts and articles yeah. written about it, even on your coldcasechristianity.com yeah, website there are, now. there are a few. Yeah, definitely. And so the things that I thought were the most pressing, of course, is if, if you knew that there was another gospel out there <sighs> that was written by somebody who had written a gospel in your Bible. So in other words, if you knew that there was a secret gospel of Mark, mm -hmm. wow, wouldn't you want to know what's in it? If you knew that there was an apocryphon of John, or if you knew that there was an infancy gospel of pseudo-Matthew, wouldn't you want to know? Mm -hmm. I mean, these are the same people who wrote our gospel authors, uh, gospel, uh, uh, our canonical gospels, right? So wouldn't you want to know what else they had to say? Well, of course, this isn't what else they had to say. These are late forgeries that, of course, borrowed the names of people they thought they could, you know, make themselves look important. Right. And, and they put those names on the on the gospel text. But there are many reasons to um, to discount or to discredit. They're, they're discredited for a number of reasons. And there's no reason why. There's, a, there's actually a good reason why they're not included in the canon. Yeah. Because they couldn't pass the four tests that we're talking about for reliable eyewitness testimony. And some of these, I've read some of these non-canonical gospels and, and writings, and it seems like they, they modify the story of Jesus, even the character of Jesus and, and who he is as a person. What do you think motivated the early non-canonical writers to do that, to modify the story of Jesus? Yeah. So as you read through them all, you see certain trends uh, appear. One of the most simple ones, which can kind of seem rather benign, at least on its face, is that sometimes people just wanted to provide information that they thought was missing from the canonicals. You know, like um, you, you, you see that what's written about Jesus seems to be rather limited. What, what did Jesus do from the baptism, from his um, um, uh, infancy blessing, let's say, to the age of 12 mm. where he first appears in the temple? That's a big gap. Uh, we don't have any information about Jesus. Uh, what, what does he do from the time he's 12 to the time he's 30? 
before you start to see him come, you know, uh, be baptized by John and all of this. Uh, well, you know, that's a big gap. What, what, so some of these are just, uh, look, we, they want to operate in the gaps. So they, they write about stories uh, that fill in the gaps. Mm-hmm. But, but of course, they've also got other motives that lead them to say things about those gaps that aren't true. Now, sometimes it's just that they want, they're from some heretical group. Um, where they just held a belief that was not supported by Scripture. So they began to write a set of documents that either fills in the gaps and supports their heresy or rewrites or adds something to the story of Jesus. You know, after he ascended into heaven, he came back and he spoke to John and, and he gave John secret teaching. As a matter of fact, that's another reason why some of these are are written, uh, because a lot of the Gnostic kind of Gospels uh, claimed to, to have secret teaching, and, and you, you couldn't be part of this elite group unless you knew the secrets, mm. you know, the secret information, this esoteric secret that's hidden. So some of these Gospels provide these esoteric secrets that gave their own group's power, um, because you, if you weren't part of that group, you didn't know the truth yeah. because there was something secret that needed to be known. Some of these have a, a bend, a theological bend, or maybe they don't support, you know, this early belief that if you were if something was physical, it was evil. You know, you had to be entirely non-physical, non-material to be of the spiritual realm. Some early groups would try to make Jesus out to be something other than a material man. So some of these have been rewritten because, again, they're they're trying to push a theoretical or a philosophical theological position. Um, and so they're they're twisting the truth to do that. So as you read through all of them, uh, you do get a sense of of these motives appearing again and again and again. But uh, but honestly, if you didn't know what their motive was, and that comes down to bias, you know, what is their bias? Why would they lie? Mm-hmm. So they don't pass the test that way. But but for me, I always say, look, before you can be considered a legitimate eyewitness account, it has to be have have been written by somebody who lived early enough to have been an eyewitness. So I think what happens in most of these is they're disqualified before you even begin to begin to examine the other factors because they, they are too late in history. So if I, I can put someone's name on it, um, like say for the Apocryphon of John, okay, well mm-hmm. that the earliest potential dating for that document is about 120, 125, but probably closer to 180. So it's way too late to have been written by anybody who would have personally known Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um the infancy gospel of pseudo Matthew is a is an eighth century uh, document. Okay, now wow. we're you're eight hundred years too late. I mean, so these are the kinds of things that you have to look at first. And and by the way, for the most part, um, early church leaders knew they were late and called them out as late. So it's not as though. Um, uh, it, these are like, oh, we're just making this decision now in the 21st century. No, the people who were who actually leading the church at the time saw the appearance of many of these late gospels and said, hey, guys, time out. There may be some truth in there. And by the way, that's the other thing I wanted to tell you is that uh, if you work with liars, mm-hmm. you learn how liars work. And, and typically, uh, if you've ever played that game, I'm going to tell you four things. Three things are true and one thing's a lie. There's a little game we sometimes okay. play with each other. And and we'll tell three truths and one lie. Well, the best lies are the lies where if you write them out on paper, uh, 90% of the words actually describe something true. But they've changed one detail. Mm. So the 10% of the words are describing something untrue. 
and why that's hard to because then in my mind's eye, I can say, yeah, last night I got home and a raccoon came in the house and knocked over the dog food and tore a hole in the dog food bag and ate out the dog food. I had dog food all over my den. As a matter of fact, there were four pieces of dog food in the water dish, which is weird, right? I mean, why would they get in the water dish? Okay, now that's a lie, but tell me what part is the lie. Well, it turns out the only part that's a lie is that it wasn't your raccoon. It was a cat. Your cat came in and did it. But now everything else I tell about the story, I can tell in great detail, even the two pieces of dog food in the water dish, because that really was there. Mm. It's just that the raccoon was not the culprit. The cat was. Mm. So it turns out that's a big difference in the story. But 90% of it is true. Good liars retain the 90% that's true, but they change the one significant detail and their storytelling sounds true because they include details that aren't. Well, that happens in the gospels, the, the, the Gnostic gospels as well. Sometimes some are better than others, but some will tell a certain percentage of things that are true to get you to buy the stuff that's not true. Mm-hmm. So it's about, look, so I don't be surprised if you open up a Gnostic gospel and you look at it and you go, wow, you know, um, some of it looks pretty decent. Yeah. Uh, but then you find out that I'll give you an example of this. There's an, a, a, a gospel that's late in history. Um, I think it's the uh, preaching of Peter. Mm-hmm. Some of these early gospels uh, will will say something true, and um, and even um, early bishops will say, well, yeah, it's mostly true, but you should not use it because it is not it's not accurate. But they'll say it's mostly true yeah. <laughs> because that's what good lies are. It's mostly true. Right. So uh, I think it's a matter of us putting that four-part template. Uh, is it early enough? Can it be corroborated? Uh, has it been honest and accurate over time? And finally, is there a reason why this group would lie that is motivating such a lie? Mm. And if you put that template in place, you'll see that all of these fail. Yeah. And you mentioned Gnosticism and Gnostic Gospels. And for listeners that may not be familiar with those terms, Gnosticism was an early heresy that began to kind of spring up in the in the church. And many of our church fathers spent quite a bit of uh, ink <laughs> refuting these these heresies. And so, you know, Gnosticism might be uh, a massive motivator with a lot of these gospels to push their ideas uh, onto Jesus and and so forth. Uh, so Yeah, especially a lot of these ideas, you know, that Jesus was the most credible, a very credible uh, leader in this time, mm. especially religious leader, an uh, icon of religious uh, leadership. So if you could attach uh, whatever your little sect, whatever your sect beliefs are, if you can say these came from the, the lips of Jesus, or the lips of of Jesus through one of his disciples, uh, you could gain great credibility for your errant beliefs. And that was not unusual in the first two or three centuries of Christendom. And so what happens is because the story gets morphed, you'll have some people, for example, like uh, Bart Ehrman, who will say, hey, there are so many early Christianities, in other words, early forms of Christianity that you can't trust that any of them are true. And I would say, well, no, no, that's not true. I, I can have... 20 people who will claim to be an eyewitness to my crime, and they'll pop up because they're relatives of the defendant. I get it. (laughs) In the end, the only ones that are going to count are the ones I can demonstrate were actually there to see this and don't have a horse in the race. They would report it fairly. And when you do that, there aren't a lot of Christianities to to choose from. There are just the canonical gospels to choose from because everything is late with a bias that causes it to lie. So so I don't think that that's fair to say. It's not as though all of these ideas about Jesus were held uh, on the same playing field. You know, they didn't have equal status in terms of their truth value. Yeah. And we just happened to pick the one that wins. No, it's not that at all. It's that the earliest version of Christianity still survives. And every later distortion of Christianity eventually 
withers. And that's what's happening here. Yeah. And a great book on that subject is The Heresy of Orthodoxy by Michael Kruger. Have you read yep. that one? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great book. That's a, yep. that's a great book if you want to know more about uh, just what Jim was just talking about. So let's let's walk through some of these more specific gospels. And I want to start uh, by asking you, I don't even need to tell you which one it is. You'll know which one it is when I tell you this story, but this is a true story. This happened to uh, someone that I know, and they called me, My this, this friend called me and said, I got to ask you about what I just heard in my small group at this church and I need you to help me with this. So my friend was sort of looking for a home church and had been attending this one church for a while, just run-of-the-mill, non-denominational church. And so she decided to try a small group. And so she goes to the small group, and the guy that was leading the small group said to the group, hey, you all know Jesus was married, right? And I know. And And my friend was like, in her mind going, no, I know that's not true. And so the guy basically began to tell them about this scroll, is what he said, that was found. And, and he said, you all know that the Bible's not the only scroll, right? And so what was interesting to me is my friend called me after and was like, you know, can you help me with this? Obviously, I know that's not true what he was saying, but how do I answer this? And the interesting thing she pointed out was that in the group, nobody said one thing to this guy. She says, I didn't say anything. Nobody else said anything. We just moved on and went on to something else. And and it was really troubling to her that she didn't know how to answer him. And so actually, I, I referred her to your website because you've done so much great work on this. But, uh, you know, with that story told, what would what advice would you give her or what would you have done if you were in that group? Well, I, I, first of all, I would have said, well, does it pass the test? Because it has, there's a test. It's the four-point yeah. test we've already talked about. Is it early? Can it be corroborated? Has it changed over time? And is there some reason why a group might even say this early, but have you motivated to lie about it? Now, as it turns out, as you know now, we've done a lot of testing on this little fragment. Mm-hmm. You know, you're right. It's a it's a it's a fragment of papyrus. Uh, it's really it's uh, it's got a Coptic text on it, and the words that seem to be the ones that are the, the deal the the, the the most radioactive are this uh, this line that says Jesus said to them, "quote my wife dot dot dot," and the rest of the text is is cut off because it's only a fragment. Mm-hmm. And it was first I think around 2012 or so is when it first kind of came out and made a big buzz. Now, since that time, they've done some carbon dating on this. Also, they've done some um, other kind of testing in terms of how it's written, the kind of ink on the papyrus. They now think it's a forgery, or at least a lot of people think that the best evidence here is actually a forgery. But let's just, for the sake of argument, say it's not a forgery. Uh Then the question becomes, first question, how early is it? Is it early enough to actually be written at a time when it could be cross-checked by others? And it's not early enough. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, if, if they're thinking right now, even if it was a, a, an accurate piece of data, that it's a fourth century piece of data, it's way too late. So even from the very beginning, look, people can have all kinds of ideas. If you're a group that wants uh, to um, to argue for a certain kind of marriage or for a certain kind of sexual activity, and you want to argue that Jesus was married, I mean, this is not the only crazy thing about Jesus that was written in the fourth century. I mean, it's it, there's a ton of other crazy things written about mm-hmm. Jesus that are even crazier than him having a wife. <laughs> All those things are not true either. These are, again, are the second and third and fourth and fifth rings of of, of, uh, you know, of dropping that coin in the water, the ripples. These are the fifth and sixth and seventh ripples of the Jesus story. By the way, you would expect if a man, if God truly came to earth, 
that there would be a huge ripple effect mm. in time and in both and in literature related to the person of Jesus. Mm. And sure enough, there is. So why are we getting all up? Why are we getting so surprised about it? Of course, if somebody there's going to if there's a Paul Bunyan or how should I say this? If there's an Abe Lincoln, there will be legends of Abe Lincoln. Yeah. That emerged. I just saw a movie in which Abe Lincoln was a, a, a zombie, right? And he's coming back from the dead. So we're going to twist the story. Now, look, if you if you said, well, I got it. I don't know. I don't know if Abe Lincoln was president of the United States. It's just about 100 years later that I saw there was a movie in which he was a zombie killer. And I'm thinking, okay, uh, does that make it that a, a legitimate part of the story? It's 100 years late and it's fiction. So here what we have is even if this was a legitimate papyrus from the fourth century, it's too late. And, and, and that's the problem. Mm-hmm. That there's lots of groups that come up with all kinds of weird theological positions that write all kinds of versions of Jesus. And so the fact that there's a version, of, if you hear a story about me, I would hope you would not assume it's true, mm-hmm. especially if it's somebody who's never met me, mm-hmm. who's telling it to you. So yeah. here we have somebody who's never met Jesus, who's writing about Jesus. And the earliest writings we have from those who actually met Jesus don't don't speak of Jesus this way. So I would, if I had my, if I had a choice of which version to, to believe, I would always believe the one I thought came from a reliable eyewitness. Yeah, and in, in one all thing that's always been interesting to me about these non-canonical gospels too is just from from a textual angle, it's like for for the gospels, the New Testament gospels, there's close to six thousand manuscripts in in Greek and and like nineteen or twenty thousand in other languages. There's so much evidence to back up what they're saying, and often with these non-canonicals, like in the case of the one we've just been talking about, the Gospel of Jesus's Wife, as it's called, you're talking about in that case even isn't that just one fragment? Right. There's nothing else. Well, what always fascinates me uh, about these kinds of, of stories is that that that, that it could be. Um, presented uh, at some uh, press release, and the next day it's going to be printed on the media as though this is this is the the one life changing truth about. <laughs> so yeah, it's got no other uh, document like it exists. We've got one fragment of one copy from the fourth century. Really, I mean, I'm surprised this made any buzz at all, yeah. given what it actually is. But you're right. I know from having been approached by. Um, networks to do stories on, to do uh, shows on Jesus. About every Easter, I get approached to Mm -hmm. do a show. And what uh, I'm typically approached is if I had an angle that debunked the Jesus story or that attempted to debunk the Jesus story, I know I could make a show tomorrow. But so far, uh, my story would be that I've looked at the evidence and the story is true and nobody wants that as a show. (laughs) So, so, So what you see here is we've got a story that attempts to put the Jesus story on its ear, and that's what's going to make the headlines. If this was a story that came out and confirmed the Jesus story in some way, like a lot of archaeology, a lot of archaeology has in the last year, those stories don't hardly ever make the press the way these do. Yeah, and one of the most popular ones, and the one that kind of gets trotted out, at least in my experience, the most is is one that's called the Gospel of Thomas. Tell us about the Gospel of Thomas. Why was it rejected by the church? Uh, and is there anything we can actually learn about Jesus in spite of maybe its unreliability? Well, and that's one of the kind of the cool things about um, all of these Gnostic Gospels. Uh, when you tell a lie that is grounded in something true, you have to kind of inadvertently tell something true. Um, so there is, because most good lies uh, incorporate something true, uh, we could actually look at some of these lies and ask ourselves the question, okay, um, 
Is there something, what, what is the, in other words, if you're going to make a statement about uh, Jesus that is um, false, you have to at first admit that it was a Jesus. Right. If you're going to tell a lie about Jesus, that confirms at least one thing. There must have been a guy named Jesus about whom you could lie. So, so here what you have is this Gospel of Thomas. It first discovered right around like 1945. There's a collection of papyrus that are, were discovered in Nag Hammadi in Egypt. And this came out of this uh, collection. And what it is is a collection of sayings that is allegedly attributed to Jesus. Again, they're written in Coptic. And because we don't think, remember, that that that, that kind of demonstrates a layer of historical separation from truth when you see that it's not in a language that is part of the original authorship. Mm. So if in the region we're going to be writing either in uh, you know, in, in Hebrew or we're going to be writing in Greek or we're going to be writing in Aramaic, but now we see a, a, a language that's not need none of those, it means it has to be someplace outside the region at least. That always is, gives me pause for concern on its own. But right. but what happens here is that the text claims to be authored by Thomas, right? But But most scholars will reject that. Why? Again, it's too late in history. The oldest manuscript fragments we have are from about uh, 135 or so to 250. Mm-hmm. And most people, who, because of that, they say well, there's nothing earlier than the second century. Most scholars don't think there is anything earlier than mid-second century. And, and there are also a ton of passages here that just appear to be harmonizations of the verses from the canonical gospel. So instead of being a, a legitimate statement, it seems to be like somebody has just taken several verses of the gospels and harmonized them and put them on the lips of Jesus as a, as a kind of a summary. Mm-hmm. Now, th- that means that, that more than likely all the canonical gospels are written and well-known prior to the writing of this text. So another good reason to believe this text is late. Mm-hmm. It's borrowing from the language of, of Luke rather than Mark, which is also interesting, I think. Because if that's the case, the text is going to have to follow Luke. And and most people would say Luke is borrowing from Mark, which it is. I believe it is also. Mm-hmm. I think that Luke knew Mark and is quoting Mark often. So, I mean, there's actually people out there, uh, and I think these are good scholars, who believe that this Gospel of Thomas is actually written um, with heavy reliance on a, 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 a document called the Diatessaron, which Tatian wrote around 172, 75, right in that range. And they do this based on some of the colloquial language that's in both of these documents. Here's my point. Even Bart Ehrman, the skeptic, mm-hmm. thinks that the Gospel of Thomas is a second century Gnostic, uh, Gnostic text. Um, and he do, he bases that on the fact that it doesn't have any references to the coming kingdom of God, to the return of Jesus. A lot of the things that he would say are, are, are similar in other Gnostic sects. So the point is, even a skeptic like him says uh, this is not something that is early enough to have been written by anyone who would really have... Thomas could not have written this because it's too late in history. As a matter of fact, Hippolytus, who is the student of Irenaeus, right? Hippolytus Mm -hmm. is right around 220. He writes a a series of of refutations to heresies uh, from 222 to 235. He calls it out as a fake. Mm. Origen called it out as a fake when he was writing around 233. Eusebius called it out as a fake when he was writing the church history in 326. Uh, Cyril told his uh, followers that it was a fake when he was writing in 347, 343. Mm. Uh, So 348, rather. So I think you've got lots of good reason to reject this as legitimately coming from Thomas. But here's what's cool about it. Even though there's lots of good reason not to believe it came from Thomas, there are some things about Jesus it does confirm. Uh, 
if nothing else, it gives you a sense that Jesus must have been a real person in history. Mm-hmm. He must have been a teacher because now this, these, these false teachings of Jesus are out there, right? The teachings of Jesus are paramount in the Gospel of Thomas. Half of the sayings are simply repetitions and confirmations of the stuff we see in the canonical Gospels. Mm. Also, the Gospel of Thomas affirms that, that Jesus had a bunch of disciples. It mentions uh, Peter, Matthew, Thomas, James by name. There are other biblical characters that are mentioned, like Mary and Salome. Mm. So these are just points of confirmation. So again, what it does for us is it it's hard to lie about someone if that someone never existed. Like, like most good lies, there's a percentage of truth in here, and that's what happens here. Mm. Now, there are some problems with the, with it as well. And I, I think those pop, those, but I forget about the problems. There's no reason to examine the differences between this and the reliable account once you know that this is not a reliable account. So why would you, you know, so for example, uh, there's no point in my uh, dissecting the history of Abraham Lincoln based on the movie in which he's a, a zombie slayer, <laughs> right. because we know that's not a true account that's reliable. So we just, there's no point in trying to compare the two. So the same thing happens here. There's no point in comparing what Jesus is like in the Gospel of Thomas when virtually everyone from history and even modern skeptics like Bart Ehrman do not believe this is a reliable account written by somebody who knew Jesus named Thomas. Isn't it amazing how much information gets spread around on social media by people who have just not even bothered to discover the facts? about things. It's just stunning to me sometimes when I hear the reality of things and go, my goodness, I mean, there's blog posts with thousands of likes right now saying that the Gospel of Thomas is this legit version of the story of Jesus, you know? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's interesting is that, that, that this is one of those that long before we discovered a copy of it, we knew that early church fathers were writing about it. So we knew there was, a, but that wasn't the only thing they were writing about. They were writing about a bunch of Gnostic yeah. trash, basically. And so, so the, the the people who were kind of had been in the know have known that there's lots of stuff that was written about Jesus, much of which we can't find. That early church fathers were calling out to the attention of their 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 followers and saying, "Hey, don't believe that stuff." Yeah. So so now we happen to have it in our hands. So what? I mean, it's it's not like it was unknown. Like, oh my gosh, look what we found. Right. People have been talking about it for centuries, uh, and now we just have a copy of it. We we can see firsthand why they decided it wasn't true. Yeah. And there are, there are so many more. There's the gospel of Mary, the gospel of Peter. And if you want to learn more about these so-called lost gospels or these non-canonical writings about Jesus, you can go to Jim's website, coldcasechristianity.com. He's got a bunch of articles on there even right now. I think you've got a couple of podcasts about this as well up on your site. Mm -hmm. And uh, hopefully all these 37 or so articles that you had on the other site will make their way over. Uh, I just, I'm fascinated by this stuff. So I, I want to thank you so much for coming on. And as we close, is there anything else you want to add? Anything that, uh, that just comes to mind as we, as we close out today? I'm just glad to do it. I mean, this is one of those areas, right, that I thought it made me stumble early on as a new Christian mm. who was surprised to find that there were lost books. But again, these weren't lost. They were well-known at the time they appeared. They were well-known and discredited early. So these are the early discredited, uh, you know, kind of kick to the curb versions of Jesus that everyone knew was a lie when they first saw him. Mm. So that's a better way to title these. But, yeah. but I think in the end, it's important for us, if for no other reason, to be able to have in our mind that simple template, because that'll help you knock down the objection when you're in that Bible study like your friend, and someone says, this is true, mm. You can ask the question, well, how early is that? Oh, it's fourth century? 
why would you think it's true if it's in the fourth century? Lots of lies were told about Jesus in the first 400 years. The only true things were the ones that were told by people who actually knew him. And you didn't know him if you're writing about him in the fourth century. So I think that kind of ends it. And then everyone can kind of move on. At least know what the principles are so you can knock down the objections. Well, that's great advice. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. It's always a pleasure. Of course. Thanks for having me. listening to this podcast and would like to sign up to receive my blog posts and podcasts by email, you can go to alisachilders.com and click the subscribe button, or you can simply subscribe to the Alisa Childers podcast on iTunes. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.